the free market to people like John Kerry means he can award his brother-in-law or whoever, crony son of a bitch that he knows, a, a, a $5 billion contract to dig holes in some village to get the fucking cobalt out, the son of a bitch. December 6th, 2020, episode number 22, season two of The Barney and Claude Show. On the lineup today, Republic versus Democracy, the Electoral College, Scrap It or Keep It. Maybe someday we'll try a free market, the life and legacy of Dr. Walter E. Williams. I'll decide that for myself, thank you. The Great Reset, the Buy Local Movement, and Individual Choice. Welcome back to BNC, everybody. Welcome back to the Digital Libation Station, Barney Quick. So, uh, yeah, people who are are new, just really quickly, um, Barney is our resident conservative. I'm a libertarian, and we take the uh, weighty matters of the day, the things that are facing the nation's plate, and we uh, dissect them and uh, and discuss them from a conservative and a libertarian perspective, um, as well as trying to see other perspectives there as well and empathize with those. Um, and we always um, uh, have ourselves a tasty beverage when we're down at Barney's actual libation station, but over... Uh, over video chat, we've been keeping that tradition alive. I hope you're keeping the tradition alive. Am I speaking out of turn? Oh, you bet. Yeah, I'm. I'm ready to go. Okay. What are you? What are you libating today? Well, I'll tell you what. I've got some Bolt House Farms uh, Daily Greens. Oh yeah. Um, and uh, a, a, a 150 calories. It's going to give me uh, two grams of my protein. Uh, daily requirement of protein. Um, uh, Vitamin C, 40%, 6% of my calcium, and 10% of my potassium. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah, veggie, about, veggies in a cup. Uh, Bolt House Farms, I've had their stuff a few times over the years. I haven't tried this one. Um, a few weeks ago, I tried this uh, carrot juice turmeric kind of thing. That, now, I'm a big fan of just pure carrot juice. I think it's wonderful stuff. Yeah. But this was like, oh. Sure. And I was, I was drinking it, and I thought, I am damn glad that this is at least good for me because otherwise it would be an exercise <laughs> yeah life. man i don't know turmeric is just to me just foul and disgusting like i i it's, it's a wonderful thing to use for coloring dishes but man it's it tastes terrible um so yeah. in in all but the smallest doses I, I just can't handle it so which leads me to wonder if it's really that good for you you know you gotta you know i don't know how many million hundred million year old device in your in your mouth called your tongue that's evolved to detect the things that are good and the things that are bad. And uh, if something's really bad, <laughs> kind but of... But hey, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to report this is good. Nice. I'm, yeah, this is uh, going to work out well. Okay, what do you got? What do you got? I've got a... Um, I, mean, I may have had this on here before, but I've got a Goose Island Solo. Okay. So this is a... Um, this is a... Uh, low alcohol beer we've talked a couple times about like low alcohol no alcohol beers this one's about three percent alcohol so um i can have a couple of these without getting loopy it's about i don't know it's probably about the same a little less alcohol than like a budweiser i think um so like a lot of craft beers around you know five to eight percent so that's a that's quite a lot of alcohol to consume in a sitting and you get pretty loopy pretty fast so something like this I can, yeah. you know, kick back and enjoy one of these, and yeah. I don't get all toasty. Um, got these three segments here. The first one, Republic versus Democracy, the Electoral College, scrap it or keep it. Um, a lot of strong feelings out there about about that. Um, how about you? Do you feel strongly about it, Claude? Well, I want to take the anti-position here uh, okay. just for the sake of argument um, and maybe do some thought experiments. I... I I think that the electoral college is a um, is a brilliant idea if if we look at our government the way it's supposed to be structured rather um, it works a lot better than people think it would when they think of our government as a top down single cohesive nation when really our nation is designed to be sort of a federation of independent states that you know are aligned around a single document our constitution right that that one thing that is a, a limit of what the government can do um so i think when you take it in that context that each state getting a vote for sort of the chairman 
of that um, executive committee makes a lot more sense than a popular vote. And I think that they took careful measure to design something that um, would make sure that all of the states had a voice in that decision and not just the, um, the population centers. Uh, but you said you were going to um, argue or at least look at a, the argument that um, direct uh, vote for president. Well, um, well, we're I'm going to poke a couple holes. I'm I'm going to raise a couple questions about the, the electoral college and if it couldn't be modified in some ways. And then I want you to try to poke holes in that scenario for me and see if if I'm deranged. Or or what? But let's not go okay. there yet. Let's talk about how the how does the damn thing work? Even I think a lot of people don't even understand what it is. There, there's the electoral college, and then there's the electoral system, and those are sort of different but overlapping. And you know, I'm not entirely sure I understand it top down because there's so many moving parts <laughs> with all 50 states having some different set of processes. But well, you know, don't forget we. Um went for uh, six plus years between um, the end of the Revolutionary War, uh, 12 plus years if you go, if you consider going back to the birth of our nation in 1776, up to the, the late 1780s with uh, Articles of Confederation. And then mm -hmm. people said, this is just not enough. We're going to need a constitution. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, we're pretty, you know, we really got 13 sovereign entities going here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in all matters constitutional, I always go back to my hero, J James Madison, who was very worried about the concept of factions, movements within society that, uh, as he says in Federalist Number 10, um, are, quote, united and actuated by some common impulse of passion or of interest. Uh, adverse to the rights of other citizens or to the permanent and aggregate interests of the community. Um, people get so heated about one particular uh, matter of the day or something and, and, and want to move government to, to deal with that in a certain way. And, and, and he was saying, we, and, that, and that's, that's why he envisioned the House of Representatives as being directly re, uh, elected by people within a district. But then the Senate, and don't don't forget the Senate up until 1913 was um, state legislatures uh, elected senators. And mm -hmm. the idea was that the Senate would be where the interests of the states were brought to the federal government. Right. For, for sort consideration. of much like a nation within the United Nations or a, a nation within the European Union would would bring its um, interests to the group. Yeah. yeah. And that didn't change until that terrible year, 1913, in which uh, the Senate <laughs> began to get directly elected uh, by people, citizens, just like the House. The income tax was instituted, uh -huh. and the Federal Reserve was founded. Oh my gosh, what a yeah, what a year! Yeah. So, um, but the idea being that um, he wanted to do as much as possible to ensure that we were a republic rather than a democracy. That the that the, these factions. Um, could lead to mob rule, you know, um, a majority rule that is, uh, I know it sounds very guys, well, the majority ruled this way or that way. But if you ride so roughshod over the minority's interests that um, they're uh, completely without a say in things. Um, right. In a, you, in, a, in a real democracy, a pure democracy, uh, all of the residents of Barney's neighborhood could all get together and vote on, on you know, how they're going to divvy up Barney's stuff, right? <laughs> Just going to take all right. Barney's stuff and, uh, and and steal his house and all that kind of stuff. But the majority voted, so, you know, Barney, you're screwed. Yeah. So the Republic system puts some checks on that. It's still actually, um, it's not bulletproof. You know, since the, the time of the founders, um, two great things happened during the latter half of the uh, 19th century urbanization and industrialization and um particular uh, urbanization uh, you had these big centers of population um and sometimes some states had a heavy concentration of those and then you had states like say wyoming uh or montana that had a very sparse and and dispersed population uh -huh. and and um 
their interests uh, in a, with a direct vote are, are going to uh, get the short end of the stick vis-a-vis densely populated states with lots of ur- urban centers like, like California or, or the, the east, eastern uh, yeah. Cellar Corridor. The argument is uh, for a lot of conservatives or, um, well, yeah, well, let's say conservatives, is that if we go to a popular vote then the counties of Los Angeles and New York will decide the president every time. Um, every time. There, there's, there's no way the rest of the population is going to, or the, the, the middle states are going to overturn that. Every single yeah. time, they'll decide the president. And, um, and those are heavily left-leaning areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we're going to have one party in power at the top of the executive branch forever if we have a, a popular vote. And I think that's why the left side of the aisle tends to favor the popular vote, because they bloody well know that. Yeah. So the uh, way it sort of is designed to work, though, as I understand it, and, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, um, but, but each state, both of the major political parties, the Republicans and Democrats, every election year, um, they vote on their group of electors. Right, so they have these people who are electors, mm-hmm. um, and so so somebody put it uh, that when you when you're voting for a candidate for president in that state, really you're voting for the elector or the set of electors. So you vote for the Republican candidate, you're you're really casting a vote for the Republican electors. Yeah, um, because they're going to put something, they're going to put a ballot in the box, and that those ballots are the ones that are going to end up choosing the president. Now, um, as I understand it, all states have the, a process or even a law that says that the, the popular vote of the people within the state, the electors for that candidate, will check off their vote for the president that matches the popular vote of the state. Um, the Constitution of the United States doesn't insist that they do that. That's a choice that all states have made is to honor the public uh, popular vote and and force their, their electors to, to do that. And I believe that's the case in all states. So that's the process. There are, there are certain key dates and key um, milestones within the process. Um, I think on, on December 14th. 14th, I was going to say, yeah. yeah. That's the meeting of the electors. Um, and that's when they cast their, their ballots. December 23rd is the deadline for receipt of all those ballots. And then on January 6th, they count the electoral ballots. Yeah. And then January 20th is inauguration day. That's yeah, that's the process. So we have a, we have a, a popular vote of sorts. So everybody has the popular vote to vote within their state, right? To vote within their group. Yeah. And, and again, as, as a federation of states, we vote for here in Indiana. We vote together, popular vote for whoever gets the most. That's who Indiana chooses. That's mm-hmm. who the electors for Indiana are going to have to put in the box. Yeah, that gives us a little bit more say as flyover country, uh, as as not a, a hugely dense, densely populated area. Um, but it's still it's still mostly the popular vote. I think the uh, the critique of the left that um, that the that the popular vote isn't honored is kind of shallow. Um, this might have been a more dramatic example of the popular vote being widely different than the than the electoral vote. But for the most part, I think it's I think it's pretty close, and it's a, and it's and it is a popular vote of sorts. Mm-hmm. And I think one thing that's been getting under the skin of uh, progressives. Democrats, I guess I'm talking about, <clears throat> in the 21st century so far, is that Republican uh, presidential victories have all been at the electoral college level. They've all uh, come up short in terms of popular vote. Yeah, which you know, in this in this century has only been two, right? That's been George yeah, W. But, and, and and he two he, yeah, he got 2000 and 2004. Yeah, and then. Uh, the very stable genius in 2016. Yeah. So both of Bush's um, wins were uh, electoral wins and, and contrary to the popular vote. I know the first one was. 
Yeah, let's look that up here. Bush Bush improved on his 270 electoral votes in two, uh, 2000 by winning 286 electoral votes. The popular vote also broke for Bush in 2004. In 2004, okay. Yeah. So so he won the electoral vote, but not the popular vote in 2000. Right. And and got both in 2004. Yeah. And then Trump got electoral only in 2016. Okay. You can critique that, but it's it's done what it's designed to do. Mm-hmm. Right. To um, um, allow the minority party to actually have a seat at the table. Yeah. Um, which I would think is something that the left would uh, would be for. Yeah. Okay. So, how do you feel about the structure overall? What's your opinion on the electoral college, and what's your view? I I, I think uh, it's um, absolutely essential to um, the decentralization of power at the federal level. It's like I say, my uh, go-to guy for all these kinds of things is James Madison, who wanted a bicameral legislature, um, <clears throat> three distinct uh, branches of the uh, uh, federal government, and, and this electoral college to keep p- power from getting too concentrated in any one area. Mm-hmm. So uh, as far as concentrations of power go, um, see, here's where my critique is going to start. And, and okay. again, you, start, you, you feel free to poke holes in it. All right. Okay. So, so one thing I want to stress, though, what, one thing I am not is in favor of the popular vote for president. Uh, I'm not making that argument, but I'm 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 going to highlight some things I think might be shortcomings of the current process. Okay. Um, we didn't talk about we talked about the electoral process and what the electors are and what they do and how they're um, how the, how they're supposed to vote and how they're restrained. But we didn't talk about um, the scenario where the election gets thrown into the House. So in that case, um, you know, there's no clear winner, or there's a there's a problem with the um, the election. Like um, like n- neither candidate gets 270, right? If neither candidate gets 270 electoral votes, it gets thrown into the House. And in that case, each state has one vote, right? Yeah. Um, so in that scenario, the 39 million people in California have about the same amount of power as the 578,000 in Wyoming. Um, so, I mean, 578,000 in the entire state, that's fewer people than the population of the city of Indianapolis by about 35%. You know, that's not a lot of people versus the fifth largest economy in the world, California. But that seems to be a shortcoming of the process. Um, again, that's a rare case scenario, but uh, but in the event that it does happen, I think the risk is is pretty big. A presidential election going to the House of Representatives has only happened twice, and uh, both times were in the early 19th century: the, the election of 1800 and the election of 1824. Um, and uh, th- there's has in in the in the last four years, there's been um, a movement afoot among Democrats to claim that James Madison uh, said that um, the electoral college was evil. Um, no, uh, he he wrote um, a, a letter about the electoral college in 1823, and what he said was that um, the the mechanism whereby uh, an election uh, uh, in, in a situation where neither uh, candidate got a majority of the votes in the Electoral College. Um, that's what Madison was criticizing. Um, the comment wasn't really um, an indictment of the electoral system itself, but um, he uh, was just concerned about um, concentrations of power, that, that state delegations um, would have to uh, vote um, one vote per, per state, and, and once again, the, the minority would not get uh, the kind of re- representation that it ought to. So Madison and I have the same concern in that regard. Okay, yeah, it sounds like you okay. do. Okay, all right, I'll, I'll accept that. That sounds good. Okay. All right, so um, 
my other critique, and uh, I will not c claim credit for this. Um, I heard this from a, uh, a, a Harvard law professor named Lawrence Lessig, and okay. um, he made the, the statement that um, that there there still can be these things called rogue electors, and I don't. I'm not really sure if I understand how this is possible um, because there apparently there are. Um, there are 538 electors. 84 of them are controlled by laws currently on the books, you know, um, stating that they must vote with the popular vote. Mm -hmm. And 454 remain free to vote how they want. Okay. And it's a matter of protocol that they vote with the state, with the popular vote, but that they don't have to. They could get right up to the moment of casting their ballot and change their mind. Yeah, that's my understanding, um, yeah. and I don't know how how uh, big of a threat that actually is, or what would happen to somebody who decided to do that. But it doesn't seem like there's anything that's illegal or uh, anything about that. So, well, it's it's kind of a risk, but if we if we made them vote, the electoral college becomes nothing more than a rubber stamp for the popular vote. Um. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a popular vote of sorts. Yeah, um, but it's it's a popular vote amongst the states, which could still differ from the popular vote of all of the people in the nation in aggregate. Because okay. that's the way they're selected now. Because it, as a matter of protocol, these other four hundred fifty four free electors are still casting their votes for the popular vote within their state, and we're still getting flipped outcomes. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, so the point of the whole organization or the whole process, as we spoke about, is to keep the concentrated, um, uh, most populated areas from deciding the election every time, right? New York and Los right. Angeles, basically, in our case. Um, so we see those, those blue states, New York and California, they're almost not in play. Because, you know, they're, they're like, especially, you know, uh, California with 55 electoral votes, it's, it's a huge win, but it's not in play. It's not going to go red. Um, so we shift away the, how do I want to say this? Instead of it being New York and California that have the power in the election, it switches to the, like, four or five or six swing states that could flip one way or the other. So the, the concentration of power becomes, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, um, I don't know, whatever, what are the other big swing states, maybe Florida. Um, so, so instead of having, you know, four or five states that are the, the most populated that are the concentrations of power, then the ones that can flip are the concentrations, right? Mm -hmm. So it still seems like we've just shifted, not really solved that problem. It's, 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 I think it's better, but there's still a lot of holes in the boat. So I guess maybe um, what we're looking at is a, a uh, considering the possibility, perhaps even uh, an acknowledgement, an agreement that um, the Electoral College could use some reforming. So on that note, I want to introduce you, if you haven't been already, to um, the idea of um, fractional allocation of electoral votes, okay? Um, okay. And this is, um, so we talked about um, uh, Lawrence Lessig, and, yeah. and he was recently in a Soho Forum debate on this issue with um, Richard A. Epstein, okay. who I admire a lot, and was just waiting for Epstein to just trounce this guy. Um, I think they both did really well. But anyway, um, I think Lessig made a really good, really interesting point here about fragmenting those electoral votes. And again, it may just it may just turn it into a popular vote. And I want you to poke holes in the theory here for me. I might not be smart enough to do it myself. <laughs> but um, OK, so California's population is 39 million people, right? So. Okay. Let's say 20% of those people vote Republican. 
right? That's a blue state. It's always going to be blue. 55 of their, all 55 of their electoral votes go to uh, the Democrat. Okay. But if you had a fractional system of 20% of California's 39 million popular votes went to the Republican, then they could be awarded 11 of those electoral votes, 20% of the electoral votes, which puts California back in play for Republicans. Republicans are going to start campaigning there again. And there's there's a lot of with the flyover country in California. A lot of it's really rural. You know, there's a lot of uh, uh, farmland and stuff like that. That's most of California, really. And there are a lot, a lot, a lot of Republicans in California. Um, they're just not in the concentrated areas like L.A. So I've got a clip here, if you don't mind sure, no, taking the time sure. to listen to um, part of the Soho Forum debate when um, Mr. Lessig makes this case. If it's true, the national popular vote would lead candidates to worry only about the cities. The same logic would say that in states like Pennsylvania, candidates would only worry about the cities too. But that's not true. The data that uh, John Corzine uh, has uh, put together demonstrates that in states like Pennsylvania, campaigns happen everywhere, proportionate to the people who are there. They try to win votes in every single corner of the state, and that's the same thing that would happen if we had national popular vote. Okay, but even if you reject national popular vote, the which is part. the core argument that Richard is making, there is no reason to reject the proposal I want to give you right now. And that proposal says, okay, keep the allocation of electoral votes as it is, but allocate those electoral votes proportionally at the state level, fractionally. Okay, that's a lot of words. Let me just put it in a single picture. So in the state of Montana, if a Democrat got 35.4% of the vote, the popular vote, the Democrat would get 1.062 electoral votes. So what that does is every means that every place you compete, you have a chance to get an electoral vote. And what that means is that every state is in play. The president is eager to get votes from Kentucky or from Pennsylvania or from uh, California or from New York. Every state is in play because every state vote would count and the president would care about votes from everywhere. Every vote could matter almost equally. The thing about that solution is that it still embraces what Richard thinks is important, that small states keep a certain advantage. It's not one person, one vote. They have more elector, more electors per person than, than large states. But here's the politics of the current reality of these small state systems. Small states right now are equal politically. There are, among the five smallest states, five solid red states, five solid blue states. So you could have this system to allocate electors proportionally, keeping a benefit to the small states, but not benefit one party because of that, keeping a federalist structure and keeping the opportunity for innovation at the federal level. Okay, so that's the end of this uh, uh, fractional pitch there. So I thought that was an, uh, an interesting... Um... It, yeah, it, it intrigues me. It has great appeal. Uh, one thing I would say about it is... Um, and, and you help me out here, um, demographics and, and their political preferences do shift. For instance, you were, we spent a fair amount of time talking about California. There was a time when it was a somewhat red state uh, at the height of the hippie and student radical era in the, in the, in the 1966, yeah. it elected Ronald Reagan to two terms and all kinds of, you know, upheavals, social, cultural and political upheavals were going on, but he got elected twice. And 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 we you've uh, on up until the end of the 20th century you had Governor Pete Wilson and and, and um, Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger in the early part of yeah. this century. So we, we yeah we had we we have had Republican uh, a, a strong Republican uh, or consider consider how the, the fact that Donald Trump last month did better with um, uh, blacks and and uh, Latino voters than anybody thought he was going to. So demographics do shift, and we can't always anticipate how they're going to. And what would Lessig's proposal? Are there built-in ways to keep it flexible enough to account for that? Or I mean, or maybe maybe his system just just does as as a yeah. Well, I don't know if it's his system, the way but, it's set up. but um, I mean, I just it intrigues me because it gives you know, like in a state like California, that's 
that's pretty much always blue. You know, again, yeah. we can go back 50 years and, you know, call it purple then. But again, also there's like, you know, Ronald Reagan and Schwarzenegger don't count because those are famous people. Famous people just get elected. Um, <laughs> okay. That's what, that's what every political party should do from now on is just run the most famous person that they can, that they can hold down. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, um, uh, it just that in, in California, it would give Republicans that live there a voice in the federal matter. And, you know, like in here in Indiana, which we're almost always red, it would give Democrats uh, a voice in the matter. We're a little bit more purple than, say, California. But, but you know, those, those states that never flip, those people in those states – you know, like, like, like he said, every state's in play. Every person is, um, you know, has that voice. The candidates are going to campaign in those areas and they can't weasel out like, okay, we've got California. So, you know, we don't, we don't really have to actually do all the stuff that Californians expect us to do because we've got their votes anyway, because we have a D at the end of our name. It just, I don't know. It, it, it feels make, like it it's going to make people more accountable. It makes presidential candidates take every voter and every voting segment more seriously. I think so. Um, okay. And maybe a popular vote would do the same thing. So I would love to know, like, if uh, if anyone out there who's watching or listening wants to chime in and, and, and tell us what you think, if you think that's the biggest load of horse crap you've ever heard, or if you think it's a brilliant yeah. idea, or you have your own brilliant idea, man, we'd love to hear them. Absolutely. Please chime in. Uh, in the comment thread under our uh, YouTube uh, channel or Facebook page. Or- right. And you're only going to get that if you pound that subscribe button. So You bet. The pound. Okay. Um, how are we doing here, Clyde? I think we beat that one to death. I think we need to move on for the sake of time. Okay. Next up is a uh, look at the life and legacy of uh, what I consider one of the uh, towering figures in the defense of human liberty. Um, he, he was a... Uh, um, he, uh, Walter E. Williams, who passed away this week, he was an econ- economics professor at George Mason University. Uh, that was his day gig. He also wrote a syndicated column and, and guest hosted for radio hosts once in a while, uh, talk, radio talk show hosts. The, me and Clyde, I, we got a lot of Venn diagram overlap on this one because we both just revere him. And um, he just brought a clarity and a common sense and, and a, uh, a, a concise way of articulating what economic liberty is all about um, that, that is just incredibly rare. Yeah. Uh, let, let's just examine his life a little. He was born in 1936 uh, in Philadelphia. The father left the family when he was at an early age. Um, yeah, he, I, think, uh, I think three years old or something like that. Yeah. He grew up in the same neighborhood with uh, the comedian, now disgraced comedian Bill Cosby, and, and some of the characters that Bill Cosby used in his comedy sketches, like weird Weird Harold and Fat Albert. Mm-hmm. Um, they they all ran the streets together, uh, and, and um, he uh, did a little college out in California. Went out there to live with his father, as a matter of fact, which I thought was interesting. interesting. But um, and and then he came back and drove a taxi cab for a few years as as, as his job. Got married to the woman who was his um, loving wife up until his passing the other day. I mean, um, she survives him and. Um, while he was still driving a taxi. But then he decided to hunker down and get serious about his academic career. And he went back out to UCLA and got a, a master's and a PhD in economics. And and uh, that's where he met his lifelong friend, Thomas Sowell. And the two of them, we should probably, just because the nature of uh, 2020 America being what it is, both of those men are, are black. Um, so you know what I think is really interesting here, Barney, is that you got that far in to this like this praise of this man, you know, this guy who's yeah. done so much for for the the field of economics, and um, and this person that we revere, and you got that far in, and you totally forgot to mention that he's black. Yeah, I'm, you, because that... you forget that shit. You, you're supposed to forget that shit. You know what I mean? Exactly. It's it's just like the guy. Is just he's just uh, he's just somebody who could see the world the way it actually works, and and he did right by himself, and he pulled himself out of the ghetto and and made a good life, and he he saw what um, what were the inputs to people not succeeding 
in the areas where he was from, and that's what led to his um, writing. I think his cornerstone work was the State Against Blacks, the book, the State Against Blacks, and the documentary. Yeah. That went now to be it. sure, yeah, he 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 was not he he, he was not without being conscious of race himself. Um, he, as a young man, he 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 leaned left. Uh, he he later on said that as a young man, he had preferred Malcolm X to Martin Luther King as a civil rights icon. Mm-hmm. Um, he and when he was in the army um, in 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 the early '60s uh, and stationed in Korea, he wrote a letter to President John F. Kennedy uh, complaining about systemic racism in in the federal government, and particularly uh, in the military. Um, and so he, that was a very prominent aspect of his worldview early on. But he met Thomas Sowell. And 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 Thomas Sowell was already uh, starting to lean rightward or or, mm-hmm. or uh, have a have and, a and, trans- and so intellectually transformation. Matured, uh, yeah, as as the two of them um, achieved their uh, intellectual uh, maturity, um, they came to look very closely at what it is uh, that that really happens in an economic exchange, as opposed to what anybody thinks ought to happen. And um, and like you say, he did this series, NPR or uh, national broadcasting series on uh, the state against blacks, and um, he he and Soul and and those who have followed in their wake um, came to see that government subsidies and 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 uh, rent control and minimum wage um, were ways to elbow out the most economically vulnerable among us. Yeah. Pretty much what that means is young minority people. Yeah. And, yeah. His uh, um, his take was that, you know, the the first rung on the ladder for anyone that doesn't have access to high education is access to getting work experience and that um, putting barriers in front of that access was detrimental to the development of those young people seeking that access and that um, that specifically the minimum wage law would um, basically price out those people from being employable that they wouldn't be allowed to use when, you know, when the, when the state has already given a group of people um, terrible educational opportunities and, um, you know, through, through uh, corrupt government policies that, that, that really did discriminate against blacks and concentrated them into specific areas. So the, the state puts them in specific housing and gives them poor educational opportunities. And then they say, well, you're not allowed to use the one bargaining chip you have left, and that's the price at which you sell your labor. You, 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 must, you must sell it at a higher rate. And, and that's the point where you know, the, the, the white kids worked, worked at. You know what I mean? So people were, had no distance or incentive to hire blacks if, if there really was a sy- systemic racism and certainly at the at the time when walter williams was a young man that was pretty rampant what yeah. incentive did somebody have to hire the black person and start breaking down those barriers if they could exercise their prejudice and hire white people with educations for the same rate yeah he was particularly eloquent in the area of pointing up uh the immorality of redistribution, one of my fav- very favorite quotes of his. But let me offer you my definition of social justice. I keep what I earn, and you keep what you earn. Do you disagree? Well, then tell me how much of what I earn belongs to you and why. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. And as we said at the outset, it, like you say, it took me a long time to take note of the fact that he was black, but um, this is universally applicable. It, 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 it is... Uh, in in particular applicable to the black community, but it's applicable anywhere um, among any demographic, uh, yeah. this kind of thing. And he was also, I mean, and, and as a social conservative, I, I take note of the fact that he um, had things to say about character and, and uh, pers- developing yourself as a person. Right. Um, he, w- one of his other uh, big quotes was, um, here's the uh, formula for getting out of poverty. Graduate from high school get married to your sweetheart and don't have babies and with that person until you do um, take any job to get started in the job market uh, and save and invest, you know, mm-hmm. and, and that that's going to stand anybody in good store. Yeah. I, I think that um, he was a very, very um, 
good role model for for more living and and um, as you know and like you said just a minute ago he's pointed out the the, the immorality of re- redistribution i mean it it shouldn't be it shouldn't be hard for us to get to the concept that it's wrong to take things from people without asking right yes and, and taxation is that because the government has a monopoly on the legitimate and 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 it's still wrong for you to take things from other people if you can do good things with with those resources. I can take your money and do lots of good things with it, but it's yours. It belongs to you. It, it is morally wrong for me to take it from you. Yeah, and he came up with a formulation um, during when this country was uh, debating the uh, affordable quote affordable unquote care act uh, mm-hmm. during the uh, Obama era. Um, I'm paraphrasing a bit, bit here, but really not much. Suppose you and I are walking down the street together and we come upon a person who's obviously in dire circumstances. They're in bad health or seriously injured or something, and they're obviously destitute. If I pull a gun on you and say, give me some money to take this person, get this person some help, we can agree that that's a dastardly act. I have no right to do that to you. Right. Uh, why is it any less dastardly if it's the government pulling the gun? Right. I, I for one, and you for, for, for two, can see that there's no difference there. It's a matter of principle. Yeah. Um, but um, I've got a couple Walter Williams clips if you... Oh, sure. ...care to listen That's to great. them. When I was a kid growing up in the project, I didn't have much time for games. I worked since I was 10 years old. I shined shoes, I delivered packages, I washed dishes at home and harder. But the kids today are different. They can't find work, so they play basketball and maybe dream of making the Philadelphia 76ers. Back in 1948, before dramatic increases in the minimum wage law, black youth unemployment was 9.4%. Today, it stays at 50% or more. That isn't because employers have become more racist. We can't even blame today's black youth unemployment on recession. No, the culprit here is the minimum wage law. The minimum wage law is telling our young people that if they can't produce $3.35 an hour of goods or services, then they are not worthy of a job at all. This is so because the minimum wage law requires every employer to pay a worker at least $3.35 an hour, no matter how unskilled that worker may be. However, the businessman has to look at more than that $3.35 an hour. He also has to pay Social Security, unemployment compensation, and fringes such as insurance. So the actual cost to the employer is around $4 an hour, even for the lowest skilled worker. A company goes financially backward if it has to pay an, an employee more than that employee is producing in value per yeah, hour. Yeah, they're, they're simply not going to do that. Yeah. Um, and and if the and if the value is marginal, even if they're employing that person at a slightly lower rate than is profitable, you know, um, you you don't want to run very narrow margins because the the that means the margin of error is not is not big enough. Yeah. All right. Let's let's go with another couple small ones here. For instance, the federal government not too long ago ordered a raid on a garment sweatshop in New York City. The shop had been paying an elderly woman only a dollar an hour, and some kids were working in the shop for similar wages. The owner was fine, and he had to stop what he had been doing. When the social do-gooders come back to the sweatshop, they'll look around and congratulate themselves on the fact that everyone in the shop is now earning $3.35 an hour. What these do-gooders don't see is whatever happened to that old lady who was making a dollar an hour. She might have become a bag lady roaming the streets for all we know. Those kids who had jobs at the shop are probably standing on some street corner stealing hubcaps or worse. The minimum wage law does something else too. It reduces the cost to an employer of engaging in plain racial discrimination. If a businessman has to pay any worker $3.35 an hour, assuming all the job applicants have the same qualifications, then the cost of choosing white workers over black ones is zero. If there were no minimum wage law, poor black job seekers could engage in the age-old strategy of offering their services at a slightly lower rate. 
If a black worker agreed to work for three dollars an hour, while white workers wouldn't accept anything less than four dollars an hour, it would pay the employer to hire the black workers, regardless of his feelings. But the minimum wage law prohibits low-skilled blacks from offering that kind of competitive advantage. In South Africa, the world capital of racism, the white labor unions favor the minimum wage law because that law helps hold together racist apartheid laws that would otherwise break down. For example, back in 1972, a black South African home construction worker would make 40 cents an hour, while a white construction worker would earn $1.90 for doing the same job. South African home builders had a lot of incentive to ignore the segregation laws and hire the lower price black labor. What happened is that the white construction unions began insisting on an equal pay for equal work law. Then the South African builder would have no special reason to hire black workers, and he wouldn't hire them. I think that South Africa example is is so clear. You know what I mean? It's yeah. just it, that is the origin of a lot of labor unions was a um, specifically so that white workers could. Um, Elbow out minorities. Elbow out minorities who were who were selling labor at a, at a lower rate. Yep. He paved the way for so many great uh, black conservatives who have come along in his way. Uh, Star Parker with her uh, Urban Cure organization. And uh, Jason Riley, whose great book, Stop Helping Us. Uh, Jason Riley yeah. is, is how I actually found Walter Williams when I was kind of oh, really? starting, okay. starting to tiptoe into that kind of reading, you know. And yeah. yeah. It was just great stuff. Um, so Walter Williams, um, uh, one of the towering figures in, in the defense of economic liberty, uh, uh how are we doing here? Time yeah, let's do one, one more short Walter Williams on, on All right. minimum wage. Fine with me. It's only like a minute long. All right. A lot of good-hearted people advocate the minimum wage law as a way to end poverty and protect the worker from what they see as exploitation. Well, you know the minimum wage law is not an anti-poverty device. If it were, we could eliminate poverty in Bangladesh just by raising the minimum wage there to $5 an hour. As for protecting the worker, the minimum wage law only protects those skilled enough to produce at least $3.35 an hour of goods. People who aren't skilled enough to produce that value of goods are thrown out of work. They earn zero an hour. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Walter Williams was actually from this here too. I think we barely heard a segment of it, but he said, uh, "When when do gooders set out to protect people, often they never see the victims of their handiwork." Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, Walter Williams will be missed. It's very very sad to lose him. Yeah. Hope somebody can come along, from, rise in our midst to uh, be a, 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 as equally an eloquent defender of uh, freedom. I have my concerns that there will be in short supply. Yeah. Um, now, we're, we've got segment three today. I'll decide that for myself. Thank you. Um, and this is a great segue from Walter Williams because a human being ought to be able to decide for him or herself what he or she is going to produce and consume in this world. It, it's a basic type of freedom. Um, central planners of one kind and another um, are, are very big on deciding for us uh, on the basis of fairness what, what we should and should not be able to consume and produce. Uh, there's a, there's a, more than a little virtue signaling involved in the buy local movement. Uh, and um, buy, get, don't get your coffee from a chain place like Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts. Get it from our small shop. Um, uh, and, and that's just one example, but, um, if your uh, place has good coffee, we'll go. yeah. Um, um, well, let, I'll, let's just quote, quote Williamson. Um, there is a competition in the market, but it's salient characteristic is cooperation through the market. We solve social problems together on a voluntary collaborative basis. One of the consequences is that cattlemen in Texas have an interest in the prosperity of the steakhouse patrons in Manhattan and vice versa. The people who want you to believe otherwise are the same ones who want to give want you to give up Bordeaux wine for wine made in Missouri or Oregon, Oregon or Illinois, i.e. people who are not to be trusted. 
The relationship between small business and big business is complicated. Some small businesses have big businesses, com big business competitors that make life hard for them. But a big share of small businesses have uh, small business, big share of small businesses have as their single biggest customer a bigger business. That's true for businesses from mm. machine shops that make components for complex manufacturing goods to service providers such as diesel mechanics and landscapers. There are thousands of very wildly profitable businesses across this country that you may never have heard of because they don't have anything on the shelf in Walmart with their company name on it, but you use their products every day. Small businesses rely on big, big business in other critical ways too. Online markets such as Amazon and Etsy help small business people connect with customers all over the world and global firms such as FedEx provide them important logistics and shipping services. Um, I like my co local coffee shop and the other locally owned businesses in my neighborhood. I hope they do so well that the folks who own them buy Italian cars. Yeah. You know, um, I hope yeah, they do so well that they become big businesses. I mean, as they, yeah. they grow and open new stores and become a chain. You, you bet. As, as Williamson says, there's a far more complex um, relationship between <laughs> all the businesses that go, go into bringing a, a, a product to the shelf of your local Walmart or to um, the, the uh, cash out area at your local coffee shop, whether it's local or chain. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so. Um, well, hold on. So one second. I just want to I want to point out the absurdity of, of uh, being a local purist. OK, and if you're saying try to buy local when you can. Right. And when yeah. it makes sense for you. I'm all for that, and I try to do that too. Um, yeah. But if you go to the local coffee shop, I guarantee you, you're getting imported coffee. I mean, we live in Indiana. Coffee don't grow here, dude. <laughs> you know. Exactly. To, to quote Williamson once again, I like my local coffee shop, and I'm pretty sure that it does not buy its coffee locally because I don't live in Colombia or Brazil or Vietnam, and it doesn't buy its go-to cut from a local maker. It's, since it's not in the shadow of a paper goods factory, uh, its lease is probably held by an out-of-town entity, uh, and, and its espresso machine probably came from Italy or Germany, maybe mm -hmm. Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, we're, we're interconnected. It's a global economy, whether you're a uh, little shop, corner shop, you own it, or, or, it's, or it's a franchise of a big chain. Yeah, and a, and a, and a giant tariff on coffee, I, I don't know that that would spark innovation to develop coffee in in colder climates if that even be possible yeah or practical even but it would keep a lot of small businesses from opening up and selling coffee you know it, it, either the coffee that they that they sold would be um cost prohibitive uh i mean in, in any case they, they either wouldn't be able to open up because it'd be so expensive to supply or two they'd have to um it would cost them an arm and a leg to get it, and the and the final product would be enormous, and there'd just be fewer of them. Yeah, and I'd buy less now, coffee at you know it's already five damn dollars a cup at Starbucks. Imagine when it's eight, nine, ten, twelve. Yeah. Now, at the other end of the uh, spectrum, there, there's um, a, a notion afoot called the Great Reset. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, the World Economic Forum and the United Nations are, are in on this, and um, uh, they meet at um, uh, Davos, Switzerland, and talk about this kind of thing. And um, in June, the World Economic Forum had uh, said the world must act jointly and swiftly to revamp all aspects of our societies and economies, from education to social contracts to working conditions. Every country from the United States to China must participate in every industry from oil to gas to tech must be transformed. In short, we need a great reset of capitalism. The business roundtable got in on all this when, when they kind of uh, thumbed their nose at Milton Friedman and said that a company has more responsibility, that has a wider array of stakeholders than just its shareholders and, and has a has a obligation to give back to the community and all this kind of thing. Um, the uh, um, and recently, Democrat policy makers have not really had, they've been relatively quiet about, about this. Biden hasn't even had too much to say about it as a camp on the campaign trail or since he's been elect, uh, elected, since he's been president elect. But um, the guy he's picked to be his climate czar, uh, who's utterly convinced that the global climate's in some kind of uh, trouble that requires our. Uh, 
urgent um, reversal of our advancement as a human species. Uh, John Kerry, he says, I, um, he was asked by a panel host at the World Economic Forum uh, whether great uh, reset supporters were expecting too much too soon from the new president. He says, to answer your question, no, you're not expecting too much. He says, um, and I think it will happen with greater speed and greater intensity than a lot of people might imagine. In effect, the great the citizens of the United States have just done a great reset. Um, and uh, it's not enough just to rejoin the Paris Climate Accords for the United States. It's not enough for us to do the minimum of what Paris requires. This is going to be central planning on, on steroids, uh, the, 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 the pointy heads of um, Davos and, and um, yeah. are, are, are uh, just licking their chops to, to institute this great reset. Yeah. First of all, it's it's uh, it's too much to expect too, too soon to to expect um, uh, Joe Biden to find his own way to the bathroom. <laughs> and two, it, it's like you said the the, the these. Pr I'm gonna get do some lefty talk here for a second, but these privileged elites who think that they know better than people how to run their lives. And that they, they, this crisis, you know, and, and it's not just the climate crisis that they're talking about. They're also talking about the, the economic crisis and, and not just what, what COVID um, has presented, which is, it presented nothing. Um, the, the, the economic crisis has been brought to you by government policy, not by COVID-19. But anyway, the, the idea that they can recreate economic structures and that they have to do it because of the failures of capitalism, I think is just abjectly absurd. I mean, anyone can go and look at the rates of poverty as they continue to fall to, to record numbers. And we've been cutting them in half uh, over the over like the last, I don't know, 10 years or so. Like, And they hit an all-time low and uh, world poverty hit an all-time low in 2019. Now, obviously, yeah. COVID-19 you know, situations definitely, you know, um, put a dent in that success, which we can recover from if they get the fuck out of the way. Yeah. Um, but, but these people are, are perpetuating a, an enormous lie that capitalism has failed people. Capitalism is, is the single most unique blessing to people on the, to, to, to poverty on this earth. And what happens is, is that these, like you said, these pointy headed, Pieces of garbage humans think that they, they don't think that they know better, but they do know how to extract wealth from people and shuffle it up to the top. They know how to keep their private planes fueled. They know how to, to create foundations and launder money and just, I just can't say fuck these people enough because they're, they're gonna, they're gonna destroy the, 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 in lives of real people, they're going to destroy the economies of nations and enrich themselves doing it, and it's it's disgusting. These people are gross. Well, and and to get back to the, the economic common sense uh, that uh, that we were talking about when, in the Walter Williams segment, dense and ch cheap forms of energy uh, are far more advantageous to, to human well-being than diffuse. And um, intermittent and, and uh, expensive forms, and you cannot make them less expensive without government coercion and tampering with the free market. And um, well, I, I, the government coercion is going to actually make them more, more expensive, or they're going to make other things more ex expensive as a result. Um, the price controls and 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 production controls are never going to work. They never have. And I've got a quick clip from from Mr. Kerry himself on the Great Reset. Podcast, the Great okay. Reset podcast on uh, by presented to you by the World Economic Forum. So if you go on Apple Podcasts and you type the word "great," just the word "great," guess what the number one hit is? The great, really? the Great Reset. Not this podcast, just the phrase "the Great Reset." Maybe that's organic. Maybe that's what people are talking about. But maybe you want a a, a, a great Star Trek fan podcast, or you wanted a a great recipes podcast or you know nope you're gonna get a giant dose of commie fucking propaganda instead yeah all right well, so let's all right let's, sorry yeah, let's, i haven't had my dinner yet i'm ready for this <laughs> okay
And I think that can be done. Thirdly, we've got to deal with climate change. Climate change is the biggest single climate crisis, not change, is the biggest single economic opportunity the world has ever had. We have 4.5 billion users of energy today. We're going up to 9 billion in the course of the next 30 years. We have the ability to go to 9. We have a billion people who don't even have electricity. There's a monumental set of opportunities in building infrastructure, in, in pushing the technology curve, which may well be the solution through negative emissions technology to the challenge of climate. No one is pursuing that with the kind of fervor necessary. It has to exceed what we did in the Sputnik years. It has to exceed the space race. It has to exceed the military race. If we do that, we'll find the battery storage. We'll find the cheap production of hydrogen. So I think there are clearly a whole set of things, not the least of which is global health, on which we will only survive and thrive on this planet if we coordinate multilaterally. And he means governments. We are exactly. already coordinating multilaterally. That's what capitalism is. Yeah, Capitalism is coordinating multilaterally. Yes. And it's what's been, Excellent point. And, and that's what has been finding the battery capacity. You know what I mean? That's yeah, if you want to get electricity to those 9 billion people that he was talking about, um, you're going to have to unleash human ingenuity, which means unleashing the free market. Right. And the, the free market to people like John Kerry means he can award his brother-in-law or whoever, crony son of a bitch that he knows, a, a $5 billion contract, you know, to, to, to dig holes in some village to get the fucking cobalt out, the son of a bitch. Yeah. Um, when, when people start talking about coordinating and, and um, uh, mobilizing an effort, uh, on the scale of, um, what was it he said? Um, yes. Space race or something. Um, <laughs> Sputnik. You know he, used, he used the example of Sputnik. Yeah. But yeah, you're, you're talking about government making people do things. Right. And you'd better make a damn compelling argument for that if you're going to convince me, and I'm pretty sure you too, Clyde. Well, they're making a compelling argument to, to a lot of people by telling them that if we don't suck all this money out of the economy, if we don't, if we don't reach our hands in both of your pockets, right, and not in yeah. a fun way, that the whole world's going to end. Yeah, I and mean, that's their pitch. Yeah, and 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 it's based on um, computer models. It's it's not even based on uh, data that indicates a. a, a imminent crisis breathing down our necks even if the, even if it is it's they have such a bad track record of solving problems i don't want them anywhere near it they're yeah. just i'm sorry i don't believe these people when they say they're concerned about the climate right i believe when 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 you got um you know joe liberal and uh, whoever out on the street protesting saying i've got to do something for climate change right now i believe them i believe that they believe that and that they're sincere about that and that they want but to the help but john Kerry, yeah. john Kerry wants to get rich yeah. right john Kerry doesn't care about shit. yeah I, yeah the folks eating caviar and 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 uh drinking bordeaux in in um Davos and Paris and uh, I'd love to see John Kerry's yeah. carbon footprint for one year. Yeah. Um, I, so um, you, you, you've got on the one hand the buy local people and and we'll grow our own coffee in our apartment and have it for you <laughs> the next morning, and then on the other hand the the uh, we've got to have a global effort to. Um, uh, completely revamp the way corporations are formed and how distribution of, of uh, goods around the world is done and blah, blah, blah. Right. Um, it's, it, it's always somebody wanting to plan things for you and, and, and which uh, uh, precludes your ability to um, exercise your own ingenuity and come up with something that's going to benefit humankind. Yeah, yep, absolutely. And, and they're going to, they're going to do the same thing with, Pharmaceutical prices, when they when they put on uh, price controls, they're going to um, they're, they're going to see the same thing that happens with rent control. 
Um, yeah. You know, there's going to be less provided in the marketplace, there, and 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 costs are going to go up. Even if the prices don't go up, the costs are going to go up. So the yeah. costs across the board are going to go up. Yeah. So may, maybe one particular drug cost goes goes down because it's forced down, but the rest of them are going to go up um, because the cost of business in general is is going up. And as soon as you remove the American market, where all the European and Canadian drug manufacturers uh, recoup their R&D costs because they can actually sell their their products at market value here and once they've recouped their R&D costs they can sell them in Europe and Canada at the government set controlled price once you lose America drug prices and 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 drug availability is going to is going to tank for 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 the rest of the world they're they're going to see higher prices and and lower availability and lower research and development and and these people are just these people are disgusting <laughs> yeah. So one one to watch, all you uh, folks out there. The Great Reset. Uh, the <laughs> the Great the Reset. Back, the hair on the back of your neck ought to stand up when you hear that. Um, I know we're running short on time, so I won't read this article as okay. I was planning to, but I'll put it in the show notes. I want you to, yeah. to um, read okay. from Time Magazine. It's 2023. Here's how we fix the global economy. And I tell you what, do it on an empty stomach because you will lose your lunch. Well, listen, uh, as we said earlier on the show, chime in. We, we, we want to make this uh, a community, and we want you to uh, interact and, and uh, chime in on the comment thread at, uh, at our YouTube channel or our Facebook page. Email us. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Support us uh, on Patreon, patreon.com. Chime in. Concur with us. Uh, pick, pick, pick. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and... Uh, um, but subscribe we, we to all those feeds. Su- subscribe to us. How, how much we appreciate you. Uh, yeah. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Subscribe to us on uh, on, on Facebook. Like our Facebook page. Um, we have a, a we're, we're sharing on Parlor now. Um, say what you want to about Parlor. I don't give a fuck what your opinion is. Um, just go there and keep up with us if you want to. If you don't, find some other place. Um, yeah. we, we do we do Twitter also. Um, so if, if you if you want to follow us, there's plenty of ways to do that. We'd appreciate likes, shares. Retweets, reparlays, whatever, every little bit counts, and, and we're enormously grateful for for any amount of elbow grease that you can put into this project. Okay, you bet. And um, we do this fortnightly and forthrightly, so we'll um, see you again uh, in two weeks. And and until then, stay vigilant about your freedom. Well, that's an interesting development.